Welcome to the Woke Blokes podcast, hosted by Nick Sutherland from MindFit and Ryan Hassan from the Center for Healing. Let's get into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Woke Blokes podcast. Ryan Hassan from the Center for Healing, joined as always by Nick Sutherland from MindFit. Nico, how are you today? Super. How are you today? Super. Yeah, I'm super. I had a very... Uh, Stimulus and response morning, you would put Ooh, it, Nick. And, and challenging been, morning. A challenging morning, as I was saying to Drew. Let's introduce Drew before I bang on about that. Today, our guest, we are very, very lucky to have uh, addiction uh, innovator, addiction specialist, and all around legend. <laughs> he innovated addiction, did he? No, no, no. <laughs> he is he is on the front line with people like myself and many others who are innovating the way that we look at addiction and the way we Amen. approach it. Amen. So, so, so he didn't create addiction. He wasn't the first person to <laughs> ever was, have an addiction. Drew was the first ever addict <laughs> in, the whole, in the whole world. In the history of the universe. Drew Wild, how are you, mate? Yeah, I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me. No, thanks for joining us. We're very, very excited to chat to you today, especially now that we've uncovered that you're the first ever addict. You, what have you started, Drew? <laughs> it's your fault. The world's in the state it is, Drew. Patient number one. <laughs> I love it. It's a, what's the, the the first thing? It's not ground yeah, zero. zero. The the, uh, the event horizon. Yeah, something like that. And that's and right. as usual, Drew, we we I, I don't do any homework for this show, so I'm coming into this cold turkey. Has sent me a link saying this is who's on our show today, and I said, yeah, it sounds wild. Did my little yeah, dad that's, joke. That's and- the extent of his homework. A fucking dad joke. <laughs> so we're super serious here. We're gonna, we're gonna, you know, mm. we're gonna, we're gonna uh, solve all the world's problems, and and it's gonna be amazing. And just and just uh, fun humor and play. So you know, this is <laughs> yeah, excellent. Just to give a bit of context, me and Drew we connected a few months ago. Um, you know, had a bit of a chat, and um, you know, we really kind of resonate with each other. We kind of sing the the same kind of tune when it comes to addiction, and you know. Since then, Drew, you have hosted a panel. Uh, shit, it might have been a month or so ago um, that you had me and some other people on, which was really, really amazing talking about addiction. And I just basically, I like the the cut of your jib, Drew. Basically, so we're very, very excited to hear about you and your your story today. But uh, yeah, Nick, my challenging morning. I was telling Drew actually before we pressed record. I had like a list of like four things to get done before the podcast and I got stuck on number one and I didn't even get number one finished. And that's why I was trying to scoff my morning tea before we came on. I got this issue, this green screen thing, right? I'm trying to record this big training with a colleague, Matt, and I can't get this green screen sorted. Anyway, I tried to put it in a new position today and that this lovely place that we're staying has like a, at the end of the bed, it's like a, I don't know what you call it. It's a wooden thing with patterns and, and flowers, but I'm like, it's a good thing to pin the green screen to. So I was trying to move it around and it's fucking heavy. And I lent it up against my, my desk here, the computer's on to go around and, and move it. And the whole thing just crashed. It, it knocked my coffee all over the rug in this beautiful apartment. Um, it broke part of their, their thing here. So I've ended up having to clean up and super glue things back together before the podcast. But you'll be happy to know, Nick, I just laughed through the whole thing. It was quite funny. Well played. Hey, Drew, Ryan's taken to, to saying really long-winded, boring stories at the start of our podcast lately. So, I know, you listened back a couple of episodes ago and there was this uh, getting on an aeroplane and, and me and the guest fell asleep and then there was... Listeners a- love it, by the way. Just to really keep the listeners gripped. That's, they that's, love it. That's full on. It's actually their favourite so, part of the show. 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're going to do a little poll. see what Ryan's been up to for the week. Yeah. <laughs> we need a little, we need a little jingle for a ding, 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 ding. And this week on what's Ryan been up to? <laughs> Maybe I should do a separate, like a mini episode <laughs> midweek, where it's just me talk, talking about because I, I'm uh, Melissa does the human design uh, stuff and work out what you are, and apparently whatever I am, I'm a a manifester or something. But apparently I have to fucking say everything that's going on in my life. And it's so true. <laughs> Melissa normally cops it, but you two are copying it today. Well, I, I heard um, you know, there's two types of communicators. There's painters and pointers. And so I'm very much a painter, and I think you are too, Has we, we paint a story with our words and a motive, where there's pointers as well who just get straight to the point and, and tend on the surface to not look to a motive. So it's funny when a painter and a pointer get on board. And I'm a painter out here. But I think in my work, I'm a bit of a pointer. And I'm just like, dun, dun, dun. so when you start painting, I turn into a pointer. And I'm like, just get to the fucking point, will you? Are you a painter or a pointer? Depends if you're telling a story or not. <laughs> All right. If I'm telling a story, are you a painter or a pointer? Pointer. Um, anyway, so... We, we said we've got an idiom today, and it sounds like we're doing it already, but Drew, we said to you earlier, I've done my homework, so we're going to fly by the seat of our pants today, and so that's the idiom, flying by the seat of our pants. So who was the first person in the history of humanity to, to say the sentence, today I think I'm going to fly by the seat of my pants, and where were they? What, what period of time? What, what whereabouts on the planet were they? What's the backstory? I reckon it's, it feels like some sort of a, it's, it's like a sort of a Ned Kelly-esque little twang to it, you know. He's, he's on the run. He's, he's been he's been pursued, and he's he's he's, he's out of here. He's flying okay. his pants. I, I like but, that. But, but but what like the seat of your pants? So it's the seat of your pants is obviously the bit that you sit yeah, on. But how do you fly seat. by it? How do you how, where did where did where did Ned or someone in his gang come up with this? I'm going to fly by the seat of my pants. I just want to check if you've got the quote right. Is it seat or seam? Oh, that's no, a seat. Is it a seat? You, you keep I'm, going. I'm backing myself in. I'm backing it. He's locked it in. I'm 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 in. I think about the seat of your pants. Yeah, well, it's a good question. What is the seat of your pants? I guess that's the... Well, well it's the bit that you sit on. But you sit it's, on I can confirm it is seat. You it, is sick. Sick. it is seat. Like there was any doubt. I mean, Drew, you can't just come on and start throwing throwing accusations willy-nilly. Like, it's <laughs> you don't come into into my podcast, <laughs> half of my podcast, and just throw, throw shade at me left, right, and centre. And so what, what does it mean to fly by the seat of your pants? That's where I like to start. Like, what does that mean? Like, what am I doing if I'm doing that? I guess maybe having a pilot under your ass and you're, you're, you're up and you're out. You're in a, you're in a rush. You're so you're taking action, aren't oh, you? Oh, so maybe it was Amelia Earhart who, who first coined the expression and, and the, the, her boss is like, what are you doing? You're a woman. You shouldn't be flying. And she's like, fuck you. I'm going to fly by the seat of my pants today. And she just took off. Oh, is she the first female pilot, Nick? Is yeah. that okay? Yeah. Oh, okay, I'm I'm digging that. I'm digging yeah. that. All right. So it was I'm Amelia Earhart. Yeah. That would I would roll with that. I'd believe that if we we're on All that. Right. Episode, we to believe okay. Well, we have three ticks of approval, and uh, so that's we better update the Wikipedia page for flying by the city of pants. Nick, <laughs> Ryan, and Drew have confirmed. Done. 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 Drew, 
let let the listeners know a little bit about you, mate. You know, I'd love to you to let them know what what you're up to now in the in the addiction space, and also what what led you down this path. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, little started with I guess my own journey of experience. I started smoking weed at eleven years old. Um, and I very much kept that circle of humans in my life, which I didn't, there wasn't, in, in my mind, there was nothing out of the ordinary with my circle of friends throughout high school. We smoked a lot of weed, we drank a bit. We yeah, is this in New Zealand, Drew? Or? Well, this is in NZ. Yep. And, um, uh, you know, we caused a little bit of trouble, but, you know, we were still very academic, still played a lot of sport, and we were just teenagers, really, in my mind. Um, and then I think, you know, things started sort of spiraling. I, I had a girlfriend between about, I don't know, 16 years old, 20. And um, I did an overseas, a year overseas after school and just came back with a bit of an ego and, a, and thought I was someone I probably wasn't. Um, started hanging out with a, with a different scene of humans and partying a lot harder. And uh, and was a, was a menace to this beautiful woman. And she left, up and left, very rightly so. And that was heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken. Destroyed me. I remember mum reflecting back to me recently. She said, do you remember the day I sort of came back in the house and, and shared with her what had happened? She said, I felt like I'd lost you in that moment. And um, as a 19-year-old boy, I didn't know how to deal with the emotion that was present, with the hurt, with the pain, with what was coming up. What I did know worked really well was to drink and take a lot of drugs and sleep with a lot of other humans over the top of that. Yeah, and mask it. Mask it and bury it deep. <laughs> suppress, numb, shove it down. Mm. And so that worked really well, and now that's where why we're here today? No? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, worked. it did work really well. That's the thing. It worked really well until it didn't. Mm. Until I lost control, until it was... It was my be all and end all. And I was living in my car, driving from, you know, dealer to dealer, liquor store to liquor store, um, just surviving, literally just surviving. And anyway, uh, grace of God, uh, dad found me and very quickly ended up in rehab <clears throat> at about 21, which was amazing. First stint in rehabilitation was profound. It was my, my first experience of this ultimately personal development and just choosing to be a better version of self and learning about the dynamics of my condition and, and how I operate and what was sort of in and underneath all of this stuff. Um, but at that age, I wasn't willing to put in the work required. You know, I talk about this a lot. We talk about like this a lot. You know, this, it takes work. It takes action on a consistent daily basis. And at 21 years old, when my entire life and circle was centered around drugs and alcohol, so I was like, So I went back out there. How you know? long were you in rehab that first time, Drew? I would have been in there for the, the the program was about six weeks, but we had a beautiful group. Like there was an outpatient program, and there was an amazing group of sort of young ones that we would almost out there every day, just chilling out, hanging out. Yep. Um, there was a swimming pool next door we could hang out, and it was it was really beautiful space to you know safe space for us to spend time. Um, but yeah, just again, it was, I I wasn't willing to put in the work required at that age. How'd you go going from going to a liquor store to liquor store, drugs, alcohol, drugs, alcohol, dad finds you into rehab and then all of a sudden you can't have anything? What was what was that transition period like? It was a bit of a shock to the system. Obviously, I had to go through a pretty pretty rough detox. Um, 
and it was a lot at that age as well when you sort of come up for air and start to learn a bit about yourself and I had no idea what even what addiction was. I had I didn't have a clue and for people to start reflecting this back to me it, well, there was a lot of guilt and shame attached to it. There was, you know, I, I've still got posts that come up on my Facebook where I'm making excuses about where I was going to be for those six weeks. I don't think I said, you know, I was going to be out in my, in my my holiday home helping finish the builders, finish it off. Like, just bullshit, you know what I mean? Mm. So there's a lot of guilt and shame in that. Um, a lot of fear. What what does my life even look like without these things that have very much become my coping mechanism? Um, I remember, you know, a... Um, yeah, one of these counselors just reflecting to me that, you know, I was, I was freaking out. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean this is a lifetime commitment? What do you mean? Like, there's no quick fix. What do you mean? You can't just give me a pill and send me away and it's all happy days and I can continue on the way I was. It didn't make any sense. So it was very scary, especially at that age. Um, and yeah, I, I was reflected in my willingness to actually put in the work. I didn't. And, and so, so did, you, did you get a bit sort of, because I, I, I find Drew, uh, especially that age, like 21, and it depends on the maturity of the person, but us boys tend to take a bit longer. But when we're that young, we're kind of in that socialization phase of our life, you know, mm. where all of a sudden those friends and, and connections are so important to us. So it can be very hard for someone of that age to then say, hey, I need to maybe break some of these social connections. I need to maybe distance or leave myself from these mates that aren't good for me. And oftentimes I see kids that age tend to just sort of gravitate back to those people that aren't good from, for them. 100%. You know, it's a lot of conditioning in that. That was all I knew and, and, and had known until that point. My circles were built around gigs. They were built around taking drugs. They were built around music. They were built around rugby. And... I didn't know anything different. You know what? I didn't even know if anything else existed back then, you know, apart from, you know, sort of 12 sick recovery groups and things like that to community and connection is a huge part of this journey. And, you know, I didn't even find that, that real sort of soul tribe in my life until a couple of years ago. You know what I mean? They're trying to how, how old are you now? 32. 32? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, environment in my mind, environment is everything. Having humans that you can surround yourself with to hold you in your highest, where you can be all of you, speak your truth, speak what's on your heart, and that's welcome rather than having to feel like you need to fit in and be cool and conform to these social norms. Um, yeah, that was just, it was easier to go back into the, to the systems that I knew and understood and was comfortable with. And when, when it's, it's, it's where we're going to go is into our comfort zones, isn't it? And, and what we actually need, as you said, is that community and that, that connection and that, that getting, putting ourselves out there. But so often all we want to do is shrink and hide away and just sit in our little comfort zone and bong on or doing whatever we're doing. So I mean, There's not too many communities of 21-year-olds that, you know, are committed to growth or to development. <laughs> That's a small group. Spirituality <laughs> and you know what I mean? It just, just didn't exist. It literally didn't exist. So yeah, I went back into that space and yeah, I sat on the merry-go-round for four years, for about eight or nine more years. Um, you know, I started working in the, uh, I was working in the radio industry, putting on parties and being working in the liquor industry. So I was very much, you know, doing the addict 
thing of keeping my entire lifestyle centered around the way I wanted to exist. Um, throughout this journey, my dad passed away. So again, like just drove me deeper into that hole of hurt and pain and, and unwillingness to deal with it or look at it. Um, and just sat on what I call the, you know, the cycle of addiction insert trigger, go and indulge for, you know, one night to three weeks or three months in my case, sometimes start to somehow crawl myself out of that hole, make all the promises to myself, to family, to friends, clean up the wreckage that I created along the way do the work, eat healthy, get back to the gym, get back to support groups, and then coast. And in that coast, I'd get complacent. And in that complacency, insert trigger, insert temptation, insert armors down. Okay, I can just go and have one, never one. Is that, is that resting on your laurels, that coasting? Is that just, I've done I've done enough work now, I'm just going to... Things are good. Why, why would I need to keep filling up my cup when things are good? Mm. It's like going to the gym and losing all that weight and then going, no, I'm going back to the couch and eating KFC. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done now. This yeah, is this accomplished. This is so did you do the AA and the NA and, and those sort of things as well? Yeah, 100%. Early recovery, my base was, was 12-step recovery. Yeah. Which <clears throat> I love. Don't ever get me wrong. I will never say a bad thing about 12-step programming. It's accessible. It's everywhere. Um, and you know, when you're at that state of just like, I don't have any other fucking options right now and I'm done and I want out, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's incredible. Mm. Um, and you know, as I'll get to further along my path, I was just started looking like, what else is there? What else is there? There's got to be something a little bit more to, to this. Um, so that was, yeah, started exploring. So yeah, it was probably 28, 29. I still was semi-functional throughout my addiction, so I always sort of had a job and kind of held down the fort. And I actually had a, a health and wellness business, a network marketing business, and I was coaching humans into losing a lot of weight. And I was very good at it, and I was making some pretty decent money with it. Um, but also, you know, not in any form of integrity or embodiment of what I was preaching. I was, you know, doing the coaching and getting fucked up along the way. <laughs> Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> um, uh, I won a trip to Las Vegas of all places. Oh, good. Yeah, great. It was amazing. <laughs> Just the, the sneakiness of the ego, the tricky little ego mind. It's like, you'll be right. You'll be fine. You can go, <laughs> you can go to Vegas for 10 days. And sure enough, I you know, made all the promises of who I was traveling with and who I was going with. And um within half an hour of landing i was i was at a dispensary getting high and then two hours later i was in the casino getting drunk and then two hours after that i had two eight balls of coke and that lasted well i <laughs> again this is just the sneaky manipulation of like the behavior that i wanted to entice without even realizing i'd booked 10 days in vegas i was there five days before anybody else <laughs> It's just crazy. So my, my subconscious knew exactly what was going to go down. Mm. I attended Vegas just writing myself off. Barely remember our keynote speaker was Tony Robbins. I barely remember what he was talking about. Um, came back through Hawaii for a few days. It was like drink driving all through Hawaii. It was chaos. And then just carried that on um, for about two or three months when I got home. <clears throat> and basically my... A mentor of mine where I was living and my mum were just in kind of waiting for me, just waiting for me to put my hand up and ask for help. 
they knew it was coming. They they probably really hoped and prayed every single night that I didn't take myself out of the game because I very nearly did quite a number of times. Um, and sure enough, I did. I got to a point where I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm done. Can't do this anymore. So, was, that, was, was that a rock bottom? Was, that, was there a catalyst? Oh, or you just got bottom. sick and tired of being sick and tired? Yeah, that was rock bottom number, sort of 350 probably. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, my life was literally, I would, I'd wake up, grab the vodka bottle next to my bed, have a few skulls to take off the edge, get up, whatever I needed to do that day to try and find out how much booze I had to get through the day. Do I need more? I had a heavy, heavy dose of Valium by this stage where I lived, drugs weren't really accessible. So I just substituted it with prescriptions, you know, twisting doctor's arms into prescriptions. So I had a heavy dose of Valium as well. And basically my day involved just drinking one or two bottles of vodka and taking a shitload of Valium. Wow. Uh, I, hear, I hear that's not a good recipe, Valium and, uh, and alcohol. It's not, it's not the mm. best. Okay. Most, uh, most of that existence is spent in just probably blackout. Yep. So how much Valium, how many, how many pills of Valium are you on a day? Oh God! I mean, I was only I was prescribed about thirty milligrams, which is enough as it is. That sort of six little yellow pills. Mm. Um, but I would the days that I was okay and not, I'd just bank it so that when I was on it, I could just take excess. I had mm. no idea what I would have been doing. Yeah, right. And so, what was that moment for you, Drew? That moment that you you did reach out to your, to your mum and your mentor? Maybe describe that for us. Honestly, both to be completely uh, honest with both of you, I don't really remember. I was probably highly <laughs> intoxicated. You know, I had been, I was so paranoid and scared of even leaving my room. I was like pissing in the corner of the bedroom, like just crazy behavior. And there would have been a moment where I have no doubt I just messaged Sam and just said, mate, I need help. You know, that, that, that little, those, those three little words, I need help. And sure enough, they had, you know, plans in place just waiting. So, again, very quickly ended up in, in, in rehab, did detox, and spent about another six weeks in there. And something just in me just energetically just shifted. I was like, you know what? The only thing, I, I've tried everything to keep this in my life. I've tried absolutely everything to keep up this sort of lifestyle. The only thing I haven't tried was you know all the things that anyone had ever actually suggested to heal consistent daily basis. <laughs> now at that point where I was like, you know that that can't surely that can't be worse or harder than the life I'm living now. So why don't I just give that a crack for a little bit and see how that works? We spoke about that last week on on last week's podcast as about how it's people think that doing the work is hard, but they don't realise how hard living their life is. Amen, amen, and um, yeah, living life in it, it just existing. Mm. That's hard. That's a lot of hard work to just exist and scrape by. Fuck that. Yeah, and I think us guys just get so stubborn as well, you know. And it kind of it, it takes for us to be having these addictive cycles for nearly ten years, and we're pissing in the corner of our bedroom for us to finally go. I send a text and just say three words. I need help. <laughs> it's like, and then once you're in there, realizing, hey, maybe I have to. Yeah, look at a different lifestyle because, like you said, we just our brain doesn't like being told we don't we're not going to do something for the rest of our life. And if we've relied on drugs and alcohol to get us through these times for for so long, um, 
for, for, for someone to say, you know, you're never going to take drugs or drink again, the initial reaction of our brain is like, fuck off. I'm definitely going to be doing this again. And for it takes enough time for, it sounds like you in that, that last stint in rehab just went, hey, maybe I'm going to have to try a life without this stuff. Yeah, that's it, bro. And that's one of the scariest things that I get reflected back to me from clients at the time is that that fear actually comes from not knowing what's going to replace that because it has become such a key tool in their life to 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 cope. You know, we talk about this regularly. It's literally just, I believe these things are just coping mechanisms. And when we can find these healthy ways and measures to actually ultimately feel our fucking feelings, then we can start to heal. But uh, when, when that in your mind is the only thing that works to regulate what's going on internally, um, yeah, for someone to say that this has got to go, it's like, <laughs> nah, mate. Yeah, because they're like, they become, they become friends or, or our source of safety. You know, for me, um, same with you with the vodka in the morning, mine was GHB. And I, when I woke up, I literally the first thing I did before I even got out of bed was take a, a huge dose of GHB because that was the only way I knew how to ha- how have my system feel somewhat normal or relaxed, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's very, if someone said to me at that point, oh, you just need to reduce your dose or stop taking GHB, I'd be like, how's get fucked sound? Because this is the only friend, the only thing in my life that can make me feel safe. It's not fair for someone to say that, you know? That's why we always say with people, that let's, let's find out why we feel so unsafe and let's work on that as opposed to saying, stop doing what makes you feel safe. That's how you identify as well, though, isn't it? It's like I identify as someone who takes drugs or I identify as someone who drinks alcohol constantly. So you've got this narrative, you've got this perception of yourself. It's like trying to lose weight. You know, if you if you believe that you're, you're this big, but you want to get to this big, you're not going to get there because you've got this image in your mind of who you are. And it's like anything outside of that just doesn't make sense. Especially when you've used these things for a long time, you do create an identity. And I remember even times in my, uh, when I was in my sort of functional phase and yeah, I would have a massive bender on meth and everything and booze and, but it was kind of like, uh, I'd be in a come down and feeling just so fucking horrible and shit ass, but I would always have in my head, I'm like, I'm going to do it again because this is just something that I do. You know, there's Did this you part- do it with like alcohol when you when you have a big night on the piss and you wake up and you go, oh, I'm never drinking again. Does that ever happen with drugs? Do you ever do you ever have a calm down and go, oh, I'm never taking yeah. drugs again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> 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 oh, that's what. I, so in a, in a half hour later, you are in a in a yeah. That's that's right. In a in a like I remember when I was arrested and I was in remand and I was I, I literally I was the first when time you're doing a hard time. That was my two nights of. The hard, it was the hardest two nights you could ever imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> um, I was shivering people. No, I wasn't really. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I'm a lover. Driving the I'm a lover. I'm a lover. I was just trying to make sure everyone else wasn't going to get violent. I was the, the mediator. <laughs> um, but uh, and that was the first time I was I was detoxing um, in there, and that was the first time I detoxed for over maybe six months at that point. And um, I remember having all those epiphanies. I'm like, I'm going to call mum and dad. I'm going to get back in touch with them. I'm never touching these fucking drugs again. You got to get your life on track. And I'd, I'd played this over doc, for the whole time in my head. When I got released about an hour later, I was back on it <laughs> and not contacting mum and dad. And the thing is with addicts and you know this true, when you say you're never going to do it again, you fucking mean it. Like you mm. really mean it. But then you, half an hour later, you change. Totally. 100%. Yeah, and I think for me, a big part of that was complacency. Um, and, you know, that was all I knew. That was literally all I knew. 
that helped me to just regulate my internal condition. Did you yeah. did you um, like has ended up you know in in Alcatraz um, doing some hard time? Did actually has did you did you get a criminal conviction because you can you're in Thailand so you can travel you got a pass. Yes, I can't I can't go to America and some other countries. Yeah, I've got a conviction. So there's just certain countries I can and can't go to. Right. Okay. Um, so Ryan got to that point and and was messing his life up a bit. Did, looking looking at Drew, was his life a mess? Like, were, were you, oh, was it a train wreck or? Yeah, I was, I was on the I was on the benefit um, in New Zealand. I had I was on my I think, third or fourth DIC, so drunk driving charge. Probably looking at, at jail time, I had had numerous arrests for different things along the way. You know, I, was, I guess I was actually really pretty lucky. For a lot of the shit that I got up to and the, the, a lot of the sort of pain and hurt I inflicted on other people, I legally didn't really get caught up too much. You know, probably like Brian, you know, had a few overnighters um, and, and, and that was about it. But, um, you know, I think it was, I was also, a lot of the crime I was committing was white collar crime, fraud, yeah. things like that, that people, um, that, you know, just the charges just aren't the same. It's interesting you know, though when people, when people say I was lucky, but in a way you were unlucky as well. Like it, it would have been more helpful to you to get caught early on, which would have created, potentially created change or something it would, have, would have created a catalyst. So people Maybe. say I'm lucky. Maybe. Maybe I think Maybe, yeah, yeah. it can go one of two ways. Like, if like what like I suppose you know, me getting arrested was kind of the catalyst to make me changing. But then a lot of people as well that I see who get arrested early on and get a record. Like I'm alright. I was a bit older, reasonably switched on. I started a business, so I didn't have to get a job. But then a lot of people then have trouble getting work, and they're kind of stigmatized and have that label of being a criminal. And it's kind of like, well, if society sees me as a criminal and I'm trying to change uh, and it's hard and I have those weak moments or get complacent, let me just be what society thinks I am and I'll be a criminal or a drug addict. So we can actually create an identity around that as well. Yeah. Were you a smooth criminal or just a standard criminal? I can't <laughs> dance. I was a standard criminal. <laughs> <laughs> so, Drew, what, 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 what did that lifestyle... Sorry, go, mate. No, you're breaking up a little bit. I was just going to say that was it. So it just sort of energetically something shifted in me. I was like, oh, I'm done. Like, I'll just give this a crack. I'll give this a go. And what did that look like? And what did that look like? You like saying, okay, I've got to give this different, this different lifestyle a go. Like, what did that look like then? What did you start to do? Yeah, I mean, it was consistency. So it was regular support groups, meetings, working with mentors, um, like routine and structure, morning routine, evening routine, um, you know, eliminating a lot of these feelings from my life that would lead me down the garden path, um, surrounding myself with a human and living a similar existence. And I sort of, I guess I laid that, that groundwork for just what I call sort of these like foundational pillars of recovery for about a year mm -hmm. and like just really nailed and clean and focused. And then just got hungry for more. It was that point of like, like what else is there? What else is there? And that's when I started diving a lot deeper. I always like had a, an investment in sort of personal development and growth, but not to the level I had until I, at that point where I started working with some like sort of 
I guess, top tier mentors um, and just learning a hell of a lot more about myself, how I fit, what's actually under this, you know, what I talk about a lot, not, you know, Gabriel Marte, not why the addiction, but why the hurt, why the pain, why did I feel like I needed to run, hide, suppress, numb from myself ultimately for most of my life. And the more work I did there, the more I started to see the gaps in, um, in the solutions that have been offered to support people through addiction. And the more I started to realize how actually quite profoundly simple this can be, which is it's just reflective of this human inability to feel and process emotions. We're not taught how to fucking feel. We're not taught how to be in the full experience of life. We're not taught what to do when shit hits the fan or there's a tight knot in our chest. We don't know what to do with that. We're very much modeled to cover up, suppress, shove it down, numb, check out, run, hide, avoid, dodge. And there's, you know, especially in this day and age, we're so plugged in. We're so plugged in 24-7. We're distracted. And I truly believe is something I'm speaking about a lot at the moment. I truly believe that addiction and distraction are synonymous. They're one and the same. You know, there's spectrums of addiction. But when, um, when uh, you know, th there's actually not that much difference to sitting on your phone, swiping for, for two hours, knowing very like full well you're avoiding something and going having a shot of heroin like one will just fuck your life up a lot quicker yeah they're both they're all doing the same thing they're all doing the same thing it's like in in the um the way of the peaceful warrior where socrates says you know most people commit suicide it just takes them 40 years to do it mm. 100%, bro. I, I love that and, and i love what you said drew I, 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 I said yeah go uh, you go. Sorry, I'm getting a bit of a lag. I don't know if that's me or no, you. No, you and I are good, Drew. I think it's um, uh, Hass in, in my, Thailand. My Thailand internet is uh, is battling. That's all right. We'll work through it. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, Drew, I completely sure. agree. I always tell people hey. like um, methamphetamine and, and heroin and these kind of things, they'll just, they can obviously kill you, but they can obviously get you to the point of uh, changing your life a lot quicker than whether it's phone or, you know, two glasses of wine a night and, and living that life of quiet desperation for decades, as opposed to getting to that point of, of turning things around a lot faster. That's not to say people should go and start doing heroin yeah. and, and, and methamphetamine, but... It sounds like you are saying that, yeah. It doesn't be, doesn't it? The fast train to... Yeah. <laughs> if you're addicted to your phone... Uh, hey, Drew, so was there, was there any... <laughs> was it, Drew, was there anything... You are talking about your parents earlier. Childhood, Drew, up until the age of 11. Was there any Was there any childhood trauma that was being covered up or you just fell in with a bad crowd and got, got into addiction that way? Or I was going to major traumas, and I talk about this a lot. Like, I, I was never the one to experience the big capital T traumas. Um, but, you know, the more work I am doing, and the, I, something I talk about trauma all the time, it's not the trauma itself. It's the, you know, what it creates within you. It's the... It's the effect it has on the body at the time, and therefore then the beliefs and the patterns it it creates on how you see the world. And something I've been digging up recently, to be honest, um, is actually an experience when I was maybe six or seven years old, and I cut somebody's hair, a kid's hair in class, and the teacher at the time to sort of to name and shame me sat me in the middle of the classroom and pretended to give me a haircut as if to sort of prove a point that this was wrong. 
And, and there's a lot of patterns in how I've shown up since that point that keep coming back to that moment. And, and the, the effect that that had on me as such a young child. So I think that's something I really want to drive home for anyone listening that because trauma is such a buzzword these days. It's such a buzzword and it, and it's, um, I don't know, it can niggle me a little bit. Uh, in so in, in therapy, we, we'd call it an initial sensitizing event. Yeah. So it's, it's the starting point of something. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I, I could, and people ask me this all the time, in terms of pinpointing what was the thing, I don't know. Because I've also done a lot of work where I go back to, like, in utero or when I'm one year old and I'm taking on my mum's energy, my dad's energy, their beliefs, their feelings, their thought patterns. Past lives. Where, where does it start? If you want to get super cosmic, we can yeah. go back. All sorts of things. So, I, there's never one on that deep dive, which was definitely that breakup. That was that initial hurt and pain that really accentuated the patterns I was already playing out. I'm saying, I don't know. <laughs> well, and, and as an addict, I find with some clients, they start getting addicted to the work. And all of a sudden, they're just in this personal development. I'm just going to read every book. I've got to lead into this new. There, there comes a point where you've got to grab them and pull them back and go, you know what? We're all fucked up to some degree. None of us are perfect. We've always got something we can work on, but it doesn't mean we have to. It doesn't mean we're deficient. So it's finding that balancing point of today I'm enough, but tomorrow, you know, there's an opportunity for me to grow or to learn. It's, it's really finding that balancing point. One of the hardest things for her is, you know, you someone that's lived your lifestyle like a lot of us is actually to sit their ass on the floor and just fucking be mm. and to do nothing. And that's an interesting expression because you can't actually do nothing. No thing. Try and do no thing. Yeah, but you're still doing something. Like you can only do nothing when you're dead. So even sitting in stillness, you're still doing something yeah your heart's still pumping your lungs are still expanding and contracting you, you you're still doing something but people don't see it as being constructive or productive or, or um it, it doesn't feel good enough so yeah it's, it's, it's so weird when people say oh, i hate doing nothing i'm like you, you can't do nothing what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah yeah totally i get it um Yes, that, I mean, that was kind of the ride. And then just along the path, I just learned a hell of a lot more about myself, took responsibility and ownership for my journey and where I'd come, where I'd been, what I had experienced, um, and realized I had a lot of, you know, what I call just sort of medicine to offer the world and, and give back and, and start to tear down a lot of the stigma that is attached to play and age to addiction. And it just starts as simply as, you know, this, this one through line of mine is the thing isn't the thing stop looking at the mess stop looking at the the heroin stop looking at the alcohol stop looking at the porn the sex the relationships that's like let's go a little bit deeper and ask why and and uh, and treat it as such when we can start to you know look a little bit deeper look at the hurt look at the pain look at why we want to check out of this life then we can actually start to really truly heal well, it's cause and effect, isn't it? You can't change something on the same plane that it arrives on. So, it's not being the fucking symptom. It's just a symptom of a deeper rooted yeah. problem. And we were so hell bent on this planet to solve internal problems with external means. 
Yeah, but I did that with depression and anxiety and that as well. It's, it, they're all symptomatic of, of how your mind's operating. So stop trying to medicate the symptom and then just, just alleviate the root cause. Same, same. totally. I've, I've been depressed or labelled as depressed or labelled yeah. as having anxiety. I was on all the different medications. Um, again, like I don't, I have a, you know, I, I get to be really careful with my words here. Medication has a purpose as a short-term solution to take something off the edge. Yeah, I think it helps stabilise so that when we can access them. 100%. But it's, it's not, and it, unfortunately, they've been treated as a long-term solution. Yeah. And they're just being dished out willy-nilly with no follow-up and no alternative remedies or methods to actually cope with what was bringing that depression or feeling of anxiety up in the first place. So, and you mentioned earlier, you're never going to say a bad word about 12-step programs and that. And I don't come from an... I had a heavy dependency on alcohol, I suppose, for a while. Um, but I, I've never been to AA or had to use NA or anything like that. So I'm speaking completely from ignorance, but I love learning about this. And, and what I'm learning is that there's no system that fits all. There's no cookie cutter system. Some people stay in AA and NA forever. Some people can go into AA and NA, then come out of it and find other support. And some people can actually go into it so they've gone from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum and then they can come back and develop a, I hate the word, healthy relationship with a drug or an alcohol, but they can they can stay in a, a more controlled relationship. So what, what I don't know, where do you go is once you're in, because turning up every week going, hi, my name's Nick and I'm an addict, to me that just sounds like you're, deepening yeah. this belief which is gonna yeah i agree it sort of deepens a bit of a change spiral that goes on and um you know i think that the framework the framework is amazing you know admit there's a problem start to look that there's you know that your will isn't really working and maybe there's a concept that's a little bit bigger than just your own self-will that's run riot um you know, start working with the laws of the universe. Awesome. That's cool. And then, you know, there's step four and five. Let's go and look at ultimately the traumas. Let's go and look in the hurt and the pain. Then let's go and look at the patterns of behavior that that created. Amazing. Then let's start praying and let's start meditating. Beautiful. Um, and then let's start giving back. Like, incredible framework. And the way that it's... Um, uh, being presented it's so rigid and structured that it's not actually uh, attractive anymore unless shit is so bad that there's no other option because the language is dated you know you're sitting in stingy grubby old sort of community centers drinking instant coffee and stale biscuits mm. you're surrounded by you know these sort of old timers that live and breathe a lot of these philosophies that they haven't taken to a depth that i truly believe is necessary or required and I just looked around as, as a young buck, like looking at some of these people, I'm like, they might be 10, 20, 15 years clean and sober, but they don't look happy. Mm. That's when I just started exploring. Like, it was incredible. It was amazing for what I needed, when I needed it. And I still send clients to 12 foot meetings. I still send people to there if they like don't have other options. It's free. People are so loving and caring and open. They're there for all the right reasons. I think that it's amazing to start to lay these foundations 
to start to learn and live by some of these principles that are really, really, really necessary to start to put down and create separation between our vice and the human that we want to be. But at some point, I think you get hungry for more or it's just, again, you're kind of like you said, it just gets to this place of monotony and you're like, surely there's something else. Surely so what, something. Di- what differentiates uh, a Ryan Hassan who has had an, addict, an addiction to, to drugs but you know, can, can go and have a beer and, and, and it, it doesn't get lost in this relationship again between someone who has to have a constant aversion to it and, and, and abstain fully from it. Is there anything that, is there anything that differentiates the people or not? I don't believe so. I think it's an individual journey and I've always said there's no right or wrong. Mm. Drugs or alcohol isn't bad. They're not bad or good or right or wrong. It's just the relationship that you have with mm-hmm. it. And if you've done enough experimentation to figure out that um, that the way you're engaging in that behavior is coming from a place of wounding or disempowerment, then it's a problem. If it's coming from a place of, you know what, like this is okay and I've checked in with myself that this is okay and I'm, I'm still choosing to engage in this behavior because I know I'm not kind of numb, pick out, avoid, dodge my feelings and I'm actually celebrating myself and it's a loving act. Awesome. I'll never judge anyone for that. But it's, it's literally just where you're operating from when you're engaging in this practice. Like that's where it comes back to it being when you spoke about distraction um, earlier. So if we if we stop looking at it through that binary lens of good and bad and right or wrong and, and even, even drugs and alcohol and, that, and just look at, yeah, the, the health of your relationship, which Hass and I talk about constantly, it's, it's yeah, the fastest way to... to audits your relationships is to spend time without something and see what comes up so mm. if you go without your phone for a week you know and people would start twitching like ah! and so yeah, so how many people are actually addicts then in that technical sense it'd be fucking everybody everybody and that's that's the reality that's what i'm going to bring into the you know um into the space is to to tear down that stigma attached to that word addict or addiction. I actually don't vibe with that word for stop anymore just because it paints a picture that isn't accurate. Like if you, like you just said, if you're really honest, if everybody on this planet was actually really honest, 99% of people on this planet distract from their self most of the time. But even Buddhist monks who are meditating the shit out of themselves are just, that's distracting. Like they're, they're avoiding relationships, they're avoiding society. They're, so it's, it's, it's so weird. It's just. You can have, all, you can have all... healthy, relate, healthy addiction, you know, like overworking is glamorized these days. Yeah. You're a workaholic. Even but going again, to the gym, it's like I'm going to the gym yeah. six days a week, you know, because I'm healthy. Well, are you? Not really. This is it. Have you said to some of these people, can you actually just sit on the floor and be with yourself? What? what? No, forget that. Stop it. Give me what are you running from? Me. What are you avoiding? What are you not willing to feel? Well, well it's discomfort usually. It's it's people, you know, in my work I talk about taking the easy path and the hard path and when we keep taking the easy path, keep falling into that mindless activity life gets harder and harder but all we're really doing is 
trying to avoid pain we're trying to avoid suffering but in doing so we should create more pain and create more suffering so well, um, i had a beautiful i've got a group program running at the moment and this woman oh god anyway uh <laughs> just checking if i'm in integrity here and sharing this i'm not sharing a name so i think that's fine but we set a goal uh it was just a task straight off the bat to come into the group and and share a secret basically just something you hold that's holding an energetic charge over you right and this poor woman, um, instead of heading live on the group, went live on, uh, on public. Oh, yeah. I started seeing these, she's staring like, in deep, you know, deep-seated Why trauma on her public um, Facebook page. So obviously, she automatically went into this place of like, holy fuck, I don't know how to feel. I'm in a fear state. What's going on? Emotionally, I just want to run straight back to the vice that I came here to commit to overcome. And I spoke to her and we had this beautiful conversation. I said, look, what if you could do something different in this moment? What if you could go and create space for yourself to be with yourself and ask the right questions of yourself to actually allow yourself to feel what's present and to let that energy, emotion, energy, emotion move through you and to have the release that your body is needing and requiring right now so that you can come back to the space with a clear head, clearer mind, rather than choosing to go and smoke and suppress and shove it down and have to deal with it tomorrow but this is such a foreign concept for most people it's did. beautiful though she sat she had the release she wrote a letter to the little girl that was in that experience she um had that i guess emotional release that she needed and that purge she came back called me up to holy like over the moon she's like holy fuck that worked <laughs> That was the best thing ever because it was also like now she's found something. She found that thing to replace this thing. She found the healthy method. The healthy it's more way. cathartic instead of stifling it. 100% it doesn't shove it down and it means it actually moves for good rather than shoving it down for it to come up later. And that moment, I was just like, this is one of the most beautiful experiences because like you, you just experience the solution congrats man congrats for helping her through that and it's as i said so many people don't know how to do that and, and being a diligent guest I'm, I'm guessing that you've listened to every single one of our podcasts to date um, done all your homework haven't just flown by the seat of your pants so that's we had uh, my distraction at the moment that's my addiction <laughs> we had a friend we had a friend of mine, Matthew Pitt, on a couple of podcasts ago, and he lost his wife to cancer, um, breast cancer, and was left with his three kids to look after and whatnot. And he said something really uh, amazing that he he let he let the grief in the front door, but he made sure he opened the back door, so he let it out. So he let it in and he let it out. He didn't run away from it, he didn't fear it, he didn't hate it, he didn't have an, an aversion to it, he just just sat in, and, and, and you know, he operates from a very Buddhist philosophy and so he just accepted it, let it in and then let it go. That, 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 that right there is a secret sauce. It's like I, I have a practice right now where I do something similar. Like if I'm feeling, I know when there's something I need to feel. So I can feel the knot sitting on my chest. I can feel the tightness. I can notice my body wanting to go and distract. I'm like, cool. At some point today or in the next 24 hours, I get to create the space for myself to go and feel what that is and have that release associated. 
Um, and it's quite profound. I think something else that was just coming through when you shared that for some reason was um, we did a men's group last night that I'm a part of, and there was just this common theme, right, of heartbreak, 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 heartbreak around the room. And men, like I love this, I assume the majority of men, of your listeners are men. Um, men do not deal with heartbreak. They don't know. I mean, they don't know how to deal with their fucking emotions at the best of times. But to have a, a woman or a queen that they fucking love and adore dearly to leave them destroys men. Absolutely destroys us. Um, you know, leading to addiction, depression, anxiety, all these things. And on reflection, I was just sharing some experiences, you know, that first breakup, right? There was still like that I shared in, at the start of the podcast. There was still, you know, in an energetic charge 10 or 12 years later. Mm. I believe time heals anything. Time doesn't heal shit. Feeling it does. It's what you do within that time. Is of course. So if that's still present, you know, 10 years, whatever it was, 12 years of years after the fact, it was just interesting to notice. And then I was reflecting on other separations and the space where I've been a bit more conscious and aware of how to process and get shorter and shorter and shorter that process of detaching. And that's just reflective of how necessary it is to move through that emotion to sever those energetic cords or sever the attachment involved. The same as a process, you're just saying. Well, well, in in Buddhism, the source of all suffering is attachment. And so, uh, and it's also ignorance. It's also just a a not knowing what we're doing or not knowing what's happening. So our minds will just, you know, cling onto these things, these distortions of this is what should have happened or this is what I wanted to happen or I wasn't loved so I'm going to take it personally. You know, we'll we'll start blaming or think it wasn't fair, it was unfair or, you know, minds go into all these, it gets so bent out of shape and as soon as it's bent out of shape we're, we're living in this real weird sort of distorted reality and then, yeah, all of a sudden I'm in suffering, I mean, Give me Facebook, give me Instagram, give me drugs, give me anything that's going to... All the things. All of the things. things I'm feeling how I'm happy. <laughs> it's amazing how many it comes up in, like, you know, piercings and, and, and people peeling flesh off them and marking themselves. Like, it's fucking crazy what we do to our beings. Yeah, all sorts of weird behaviours show up as, as these symptoms of our internal condition. All right, so Hass's, Hass's internet is uh, is watched too far too much porn. He's he's run out of data. He's um, <laughs> he's he's been distracting himself. Um, so I, I'm like we really want to say soon, a few things too. We are going to wrap up soon, but I'm curious as to what's life like with Drew now. Like, what? Yeah, you're on the Gold Coast, I think. Are you, what's, are you in a relationship? Are you, what are you doing? I'm in the most beautiful, loving, caring relationship with me, which yes. is phenomenal. It's it's the best relationship I've probably ever been Go in. you good thing. Um, I Yeah, living on the Gold Coast. And yeah, I'm, I, I'm an addiction coach or mentor or whatever you want to call it. I just help people overcome, you know, draw a line in the sand and be better than their bullshit. Yeah. And it's the most fulfilling 
rewarding job I could ever possibly imagine doing. So what? So you got your own business? So did you go and study, or what? What, what happened? What's what's you know, all my own experience? Uh, it's all built on experience. I genuinely believe it's by a lot of the people who work with me work with me is because I have walked that path. Um, yeah. and a ton of different resources of, of what has helped get me exactly to where I am today mm. and help people lay those foundational principles to start to build that, like I've just said, actually, build that relationship with themselves. It always comes back to self. Um, Char- charity charity's not the only thing that starts at home. Everything starts at home, doesn't it? All of it. All of it. It's, this is an internal game, and there's, it's a funny thing that sort of has been coming up with it this week as well. It's, it's, it's just basically you're playing a giant opposite game, really. Yeah, giant yeah. game of self awareness. Oh, I can see that doesn't work. For me. What's the opposite? Can I do that right now? Cool, let's go. And we talk about in my work. There's five steps of change, and the first one is awareness. So you can't change it unless you're aware of it. So being more mindful and and and, and then accepting that it's a, an issue, it's problematic, and we need to deal with it. Awareness is everything. Awareness with the awareness, we then a gifted choice. So, if if this if someone's listening to this and it's all resonating with them, or they've they've got a friend that they think it'll resonate with, uh, um, how can they get in touch with Drew Wild, and, and where can they work with you? Working with people online, or what's the go? Yeah, mostly online. Uh, if you're on the Gold Coast, obviously come and hang out. Um, but I'm I'm an open book. If you just want to have a conversation, just buzz me. You'll find me on Facebook, Drew Wild. Or um, Instagram at Drew underscore wild. And you'll find a hell of a lot more content, free resources, all of the things. And I believe I'm a pretty cool dude. If you just want to come and hang out and have a conversation, we can do that as well. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Good conversation. It goes a long way. It goes a long way. Buddy, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for and, and 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 yeah, just giving the listeners some things to consider, some nuggets of of wisdom that they can go and chew on for the afternoon or, or evening, depends on when they're listening. Um, it's been beautiful. Like Hass came on hard early with his stories. Like I think the universe has decided that Hass's stories are just uh, uh, too much. It's like it's, it's content heavy at the start, so they've banned him for the rest of it. This is beautiful. I'm just going to keep talking. I've got the reins, baby. Woo! Where are we going to end up? <laughs> uh, Drew, thanks so much, man. You're a beautiful man doing beautiful things. So we love your work. And um, Ryan, you're beautiful as well. And, uh, yeah, listeners, thanks very much. And peace out, everybody. Perfect. <laughs>you for tuning into the woke blokes podcast please don't forget to subscribe to the show also leave us a five-star rating we thank you so much and we'll see you all next time